Laura, welcome to Geological. Hi, thanks. Nice to have you back. You've been on before. You taught us a thing or two about sciatica, and we've talked about Sa'am. Today, we're going to have a conversation about ethics, and I am curious to know what got you interested in ethics. Well, I remember in college in the late 70s, I was curious about ethics, and I took actually two semesters of biomedical ethics, and we were wrestling with questions like, is abortion good or bad, and all the ramifications of that. We talked about uh, the ability of people to commit suicide and things like, you know, selling organs of people who have died. And in the late 70s, there was a lot of kind of bubbling up of interest in this stuff. And uh, I'm not sure we've made much progress now, but I've been continuing to get educated during my master's degree in counseling psychology. Of course, ethics is a huge issue. And because of my specialty in as a psychotherapist, working with patients from the criminal justice system who were both addicted and psychiatrically impaired, I had a ton of experience and training about the management of boundaries, because that's really what it's all about. And uh, then, of course, coming into the acupuncture profession, I immediately noticed that the boundary structure for acupuncturists is a bit different from psychotherapists, and I was curious about that. And I wrote a series of articles in Acupuncture Today way back in the early 2000s, and then I actually attended a course for physicians on the particulars of ethics. And that course really, really turned my head around. Like most of us, I've taken the little two-hour classes to satisfy my NCAAOM ethics requirements and actually found them pretty uninteresting. So I've been fascinated by the kinds of little tricks, little opportunities to get ourselves in trouble that rise in the clinic every single day. And I've noted that, especially as I age, my ability to track and respond appropriately to those is much better because I am able to manage my anxiety and my consciousness more effectively. So, you know, as a result of 40 years of meditation, I am witnessing this, uh, opportunity for ethics mistakes <laughs> constantly going by. Well, I think any of us that have practiced for any length of time, or anyone who's done anything for any length of time, for that matter, there's, you know, there's kind of a feel that we get for the territory that we're mm -hmm. in. And it seems to me that when it comes to ethics, and you were talking about you're delving into it in the 70s, I mean, organ transplants we're just kind of starting to become a thing back then, yeah. right? Abortion was a huge issue. Well, it's still a huge issue. It's just a huge issue in a different way. And we all read that Kurt Vonnegut book about people, the in the ethical suicide parlors. I can't, was that, was that Welcome to the Monkey House? I cannot remember which book it was, but I think they were like co-businessed with Howard Johnson's right. restaurants, <laughs> which no longer exist. Yeah, and that you know, and that's an ethical issue as well. So ethics, I mean, it seems to be seems to me that ethics is it's this way of helping us to navigate so that we can 
be helpful to our patients. We can do things that don't harm them. Um, and as you and I were talking earlier, which is why we decided to even sit down for this conversation, there's an element of ethics to look at to make sure that we don't harm ourselves. Right. Because if we're harming ourselves, we're not going to be able to be helpful to our patients. Right. And our job is to be helpful to our patients. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, that really comes up for me around this, I mean, with ethics, there are some very hard and fast lines, right? I mean, you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't sleep with your patients. I mean, there are some very hard stop lines, but there's a lot of areas that are more, they're more like zones yep. than lines. And it's like a terrain to navigate. And that gets more difficult. Yeah. And we talked about the fact that one way that you navigate in that space is by tracking what we called your heart. But, you know, some of us are to a greater or lesser degree able to do that. I know that in my very early 20s, I wasn't able to have as clear a sense as I am now in my 60s. And so it's kind of an amorphous realm with no structure or guidelines. And that, and especially on a day when you're really stressed in the clinic, when you're working fast and you've got complicated people or people whose feet really stink or whatever it is that distracts you, you have a much harder time making a good call when you're in that amorphous space of being tempted to cross a boundary. Mm -hmm. So, and we started this talking about, you have a background also as a psychotherapist. Psychotherapists are like super keen on watching for boundaries. I mean, it's, it's partly how they work. And in the work that you did, you had people, if you didn't hold a boundary, it would go bad really quick. It was all about boundaries. It was all about boundaries. I, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, acupuncturists, we, we operate in a different world than a psychotherapist. Our boundaries, it's not that we don't have them. Of course we do, but they're different. Would you agree with that? Is that? Yes. And that's one okay. of the reasons why being an acupuncturist is in some ways so much more fun <laughs> because we can have a little softer structure. Mm-hmm. Now, I practiced in the in the early 80s in Boston in more of a psychoanalytic um, environment where, and working with seriously mentally ill patients, uh, the patient never knew anything about me personally. And we started precisely on time. We ended precisely on time. And every word that came out of my mouth had already been examined by me to see what effect it would have in the process. Uh-huh. So, I mean, with that, it's literally like you're using your words like needles, right? Exactly. Super pointed and precise. Yes. You don't get to mm -hmm. say a word that you have not already evaluated for its effect. So in the acupuncturist role, at least in my clinic, and I've been in practice for 27 years, I tend to design each relationship based on what I know about the person I'm working with. So if I'm working with a re retired farmer, as I did yesterday, there's a chatty kind of down-home quality, how are things going out on your farm? Are your cattle suffering with this moisture? And that's a different relationship 
if I'm working with somebody who I know is like a church person, I might say, well, I spend a lot of time singing at my church. You know, I might cross a little boundary there and share something personal in order to connect, in order mm -hmm. to create rapport. Super important in our work. Yes. But there are people who come here who need me to be the authority. They need me to be the doctor. They need me to be much more, what, silent in a way. And they don't want me to chat about this and that. They want me to just be very official and professional. Right. Super objective. Yeah. And I can pick that up pretty early on by how they share. Yeah. So... I think we're always, if we're sensitive, we're always kind of thinking about how to relate to patients in the way that best helps them. Mm -hmm. Well, when I think about boundaries too, I think about like cell membranes, yeah. they keep a certain integrity, but they're also somewhat permeable. Stuff needs to come in, stuff needs to get out. I think this is true in how we work with people. Things need to come in, things need to go out. It's not that we don't have boundaries. Of course we have boundaries. It's what kind of boundary is it? What's getting through that should get through? What's getting out that should get out? And it's it's when things are going in that, that shouldn't be going in, there's a problem, right? Or sometimes maybe things are coming out from the patient. We need to be very careful that it doesn't actually come into us. And I'm not talking in some esoteric way. I'm talking in in some relational way where we can just recognize and go, oh, this patient is not talking about me. They're talking about somebody else. I don't need to take this personally. Yeah, all of that. Well, you know, as healers, I think all of us probably, at least I hope, would have this foundational sense of first do no harm, right? We want to help. I think all of us that are in this business, unless we're, you know, some kind of, you know, psychopath who you know, enjoys controlling others and, you know, manipulating people for, you know, whatever, you know their own personal reasons. But I, I think that the vast majority of us, we do want to help. And in wanting to help, we want to make sure that first, we don't cause more problems to do no harm. So I'd like to get into this a bit about what does it mean to do no harm? Well, unfortunately, it's not possible for us to always prevent harm. Because remember the old joke about that's why they call it the practice of medicine. You know, we're essentially always experimenting on our patients. I hate to say it. I'm sure there are people who will disagree. But you know, somebody comes with a complicated problem, we try something. And hopefully it doesn't backfire. Uh, we make a prescription of herbs, hopefully they don't get diarrhea. You know, and so we're always kind of playing that edge. And um, so we can't promise a completely sort of pristine, harmless process for our patients. But the point is, we are always trying to do no harm. We're always working to approximate being harmless. And, and I think it's probably helpful for us to recognize, helpful for us to recognize when am I working in the in the area where I feel like I've got experience and competence? And when am I on that edge of, oh, I need to be very careful because this is my growing edge. I was recently at my niece's uh, high school 
over in the math department. They had these like, you know, parent-teacher conference things. And there was this sign. This was great. The sign was talking about mathematics, but I think the sign was also talking about medicine. It said, when you're getting the answer right, you're practicing. When you're getting the answer wrong, you're learning. Wow. Right? Super cool thing to, you know, see as a, you know, high school kid, man. I wish I saw posters like that when I was in high school. But I saw that and I thought, whoa, that really describes medicine. Mm-hmm. And and for me, it, it helped me to recognize a boundary. It helped me to recognize a guideline that I already have in myself. It came, it came through practice. It came through the time that I've spent with this, that there are indeed times I'm learning. Am I practicing? I'm learning. We call it the practice of medicine, but this, but I'm in the learning mode of practice. And there's other times people come in and I, and I pretty much know what to do. It's pretty clear cut. Perhaps leave and treatment I call, and or I be do. unhappy. I would call that practice. And I think and it's so really helpful, we at least for me as a practitioner, to, to know so we have to which of those areas the relationship am I standing with in the at this moment, so that because it'll help me to orient toward my patient. And so that well, they will you know, if feel you're, like if you're they having can surgery continue on the journey in the operating room, they have a series and that's one of the reasons of very why ethics well are so important, because when we cross surgery and all the possible predictable bad things that could happen. But there will always be something that happens that they don't expect sometimes. And so they are learning. You know, in the acupuncture practice, I think we're in an experimentation mode more than that, more than a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we make our diagnosis, we hope we've got it right, et cetera. So we have to hold ourselves to a very high standard, uh, not only of being good to our patients, but also being good to ourselves because when we make a, an error in our treatment, we also have to be easy on ourselves and remember that we are learning. So, you know, we also talk about the fact that this relationship is sacred and mm. that our goal with our patient is to be of service and that things that we do that the patient will find difficult, like not having the outcome they hope or having a side effect, are things that are going to make the patient perhaps leave treatment or be unhappy. And so we need to continue to be of service. And so we have to manage the relationship with the patient so that they trust us and so that they will feel like they can continue on the journey with us. And that's one of the reasons why ethics are so important, because when we cross boundaries in a, in a very unhealthy way, it damages the relationship so that we can no longer be in service to that person. The idea of being in service, and how do I phrase this? Okay. So, for example, I will often get phone calls, as I think all of us do. And somebody wants to come in because they want to, air quotes here, try acupuncture. Okay. I would like to be of service to them and I would like to be helpful. And I know this, when somebody wants to try acupuncture, they're probably looking for a miracle cure with one treatment. Very often. And, you know, all of you listening to this, you're probably shaking your heads and going, yeah, I've had that experience. I would love to be helpful to people. And I used to think, you know, if I can just get them in the door and show them how great this is, they're going to see it and it's going to be wonderful and they're going to stick around. That 
usually I realize that didn't many play of us out, come into this work in because experience. of our selfless that might, that might be saying something about my skills and to helping others. But what I found and at this it point can in sometimes the game, if I really want to be of service to that person, where we find ourselves paying I will let them know that trying acupuncture means of three to five treatments. Sure. And we because can we pay need for to that see how you respond in many ways. Some, sometimes we give and discounts. I will we not work for see free. them if they just want to we come in once. People run I'll up encourage them to go somewhere else. And it's not because I'm trying to get in and fill up my calendar. It's because I would like to be of service. And I know that I cannot be of service with a one-off, you know, Hail Mary pass. This, I think, gets really into an area of what's good for me and what's good for the patient. Because, in fact, it is better for me if they come in three times. My pocketbook is going to like that. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. I'm well aware of it. But I've got my eye on what's best for them. Yeah, and maybe it can be both. Well, I think it can be both. It absolutely can. There's times when we're doing our best work for them. It also brings us benefit. I, I think it's super helpful to recognize, oh, there's mutual benefit in some of these kinds of things. Yes. Um, and, then, and then you go a little further to the side and go, well, you're going to need at least 12 treatments before we know if anything works. And, and that, at least for me, that, that's a terrain. I would be uncomfortable if I got five treatments in and nobody had any change. Oh, you should be. So that dynamic of what's better, what's good for me versus what's good for the patient is, is an important one. But another interesting question is the fact that we have to do this practice in a way that does not harm us. Mm. And one of the traps that... I've not heard anybody say that before. And I mean, in terms of, of thinking about ethics, that we have to work in a way that doesn't harm us. It, it, usually when I think about ethics, it's about how we're not harming the person we're serving. So I'm, I'm super curious about this. Well, it's possible I have some experience in this. Years ago, I was talking to an attorney who does medical malpractice defense, and he said, psychotherapists and massage therapists and people like acupuncturists tend to fall on their swords. Mm. And I was so kind of offended by that, but also I felt it was a very fatherly thing for him to say. And I realized that many of us come into this work because of our selfless dedication to helping others. And it can sometimes backfire and get us into a situation where we find ourselves paying for the privilege of doing acupuncture. And we can pay for that privilege in many ways. Some, sometimes we give discounts, we work for free, we let people run up a bill, we might travel to their house or another location. And then after doing those things, find that we feel irritated or angry with our client and that harms us and harms that relationship. And so sometimes when we try to help people, we actually damage the relationship in these kinds of ways. And that is a very, it truly is a slippery slope. 
And, you know, we, we make those transgressions without any, you know, we're, it's so instantaneous for us to be helpful. And we don't, we don't have a method for thinking it through sometimes. Well, it's interesting hearing you use the word transgression for this, because my suspicion is most of us would think, oh, I'm just being kind and generous. Well, maybe it's my Episcopalian brain. But I, I think that, you know, when you think of the, the definition of the word transgression, I haven't looked it up lately. But for me, it means, you know, crossing mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing that I'm well aware of, because I talk to other acupuncturists and because I am an acupuncturist and because I've been in these conversations complaining about our patients. Oh, I had this patient and they're right. I mean, we all know that conversation. We've all been on both sides of that conversation. And as I'm sitting here talking with you today, I am now having this light bulb go off in my head that says, well, Michael Max, when you were complaining about that patient, it's because you were not attending to a boundary that you crossed inadvertently. Exactly. Complaining about patients is always a symptom that you allowed something to happen. And because you are in the role of the relationship manager, it is your responsibility. It's not the patient's responsibility. You, as, a, as a healthcare practitioner, there, you always have more power than your patient. Mm. You are in the driver's seat. You are the decider about how this is going to go and where that boundary lies and how you're going to dance around it. So yes, if you find yourself complaining about a patient, guess what? You lost control of the steering wheel. And it's our wheel to steer. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is... I mean, for me, that's super helpful. Every now and then in my mind, I, I do find myself complaining about something. And uh, it's very helpful to have this reframe that, oh, this is a place where I need to step into my own authority. Yeah. This is a place where the power is mine to exercise. And, and abdicating is not going to be helpful for anybody. I do think sometimes it's it's not it's not wrong to complain about patients. If you've had a hard day and somebody came in with stinky feet and you just, you found yourself overwhelmed, you might come home and say, God, I wish people would shower before they come to the doctor. And so, you know, what boundary does that point to? I I don't think we need to ask our patients to always shower before their appointments. I think we have to be a better container of our own feelings and internal process. But sometimes we do need, if there is a person who comes time after time without bathing, there's the boundary. You say, Mm -hmm. it would be so much more healthy for you if you will bathe before each treatment so that we can really ensure good infection control. So there you are managing the boundary. You're taking back the steering wheel in that relationship. And the patient is going to appreciate it. And then you don't have to smell stinky feet. Or they may not appreciate it. But again, that's that that's kind of not our business in a way. Our business is to recognize something. And, and like the patient with the stinky feet, this is a great example, that if it happens once or twice, okay, it's, it's one of the hazards of the job. If it's something that's getting in the way 
of you being able to do your job, that's a different story. Right. And so you're, when you say something about it, you're managing the container that is the relationship. Mm -hmm. Which is sacred. Yes. Mm -hmm. I want to come back for a moment to the piece about us being harmed ourselves because of the way that we're practicing. Because it seems that there's a lot of acupuncturists who have some issues with business and taking care of their business and making sure that that they've got their fees set properly and that they're not working themselves to death and that their practice is running in a way that they can sustain themselves without being run ragged. That's very important. And it is such a difficult balance because when people graduate from acupuncture school now, they have enormous debt and the market is more competitive by the day for acupuncturists. There aren't many jobs out there. And it is kind of a setup for people to work too much. I certainly have worked too much for many years. And I had found myself in some health situations that clearly demonstrated my need to change my self-care. But it's, it's almost an addiction to help people at your own expense. Years ago, my therapist said, oh yeah, that's because you were raised by narcissistic parents. Wow. It took me days to really digest what that meant. And it's a nice way of saying you're a people pleaser. Mm. It's so automatic. I mean, to some extent, everybody is narcissistic. That's healthy. You know, you have... Well, we're all looking out to make sure that we survive, right? That's, it's, there's a normal amount of self-involvement that if you don't have that a certain amount of ego strength... You're just not going to make it very well in this world. Yeah. And, and as a child, you, you want to please your parents. You have to please your parents because they're giving you guidance. But that can get extended into you know our adult life where we derive our self-value from treating patients. And if we're not treating patients, we don't feel a sense of meaning and a sense of who we are. And that is a very dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. It can set us up for trying to get something from our patients that, that we should be getting from ourselves. Ourselves and our other relationships, our other social structures, our other roles in life. So back to this business piece for just a second, because you know I love to chew on business, probably because it's been one of my big issues for like a lot of my life and my practice. If I am following you, if I'm tracking correctly here, it's incumbent on us, if we are going to work in an ethical way, that we attend to doing our business as well, because that way we will be well enough supported that we can take care of others. Yes. I know that a lot of times folks really have problems with, well, I don't know if I can ask for this, or it's not fair to ask people for money, or healthcare should be free. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways that it gets talked about that we can step back and go, well, I don't really have to pay attention to business. But if you don't have an actual functioning business, 
you don't even have, it's like you don't have a foundation to stand on to invite people into a practice with. And if you're poor, you are not going to feel comfortable charging a lot of money to your clients. You know, the old saying they used to say in practice management classes, you need to charge a fee that you could afford. Well, that's not a good measure for people earlier in their practices. For the first, I think maybe six or seven years of my practice, I had either a full-time or a part-time job. And at first I was working as a research assistant at the university and practicing in the evenings. And then after that gig ended, I continued to work as a seamstress for a, for a dress designer. And I, I manufactured ear candles and I had all these side gigs so that I could do acupuncture. And sometimes people get out of school and they just expect to instantly have a full practice and all that. And it's very stressful being poor. I think we have to do whatever it takes to make it work, you know, clean houses, whatever, because the financial stress of your personal life is going to affect your boundary choices in your practice. You know, I can tell we're talking about an ethical issue here because there's not like a clear answer. It's, it's kind of like we're grinding out these opposites, this tension of opposites to try to get at some sense of essence here. So uh, just a few minutes ago, earlier in this conversation, you were talking about that you don't want to work in a way that you are paying to give people acupuncture. And, and yet here we are looking at the other side of it, which is sometimes you've got to really hustle to make sure that you can get a practice established. And, and to me, this is really where ethics comes in and ethics is so important because both of these things are true. We're looking at two different contexts. It's not like one is wrong and one is right. There's a tension here of both these things being true in certain ways at certain times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, so w when I say paying for the privilege that means within the, stru the structure that is your practice. And yes, you might have to pay for the privilege of doing acupuncture on the outside of the structure that is your practice. Of course, mm. you know, you pay to go to school, you pay for CEUs and licensing and all that. We're always paying for the privilege of doing acupuncture, but not in a way that contaminates the relationship. That is the difference. That's a helpful distinction. When you pay for the privilege of doing acupuncture by paying for your license, that does not contaminate the patient relationship. But when you discount your fees and you find yourself resenting that person who you offered the discount to, then you have contaminated the relationship. Is there a place and time for discounting fees? I believe that there is. And the healthiest way to go about that is, first of all, when you notice the impulse to give somebody a discount, you need to slow down, check inside, and see what is causing you to do that. You also need to evaluate the, the patient that you're thinking about. Is this a person who truly appreciates your value and has expressed that to you? Is this a person who perhaps goes through their life getting discounts everywhere they go 
because they might be a bit manipulative? Is this a person who you might discount their treatment and they're going to quit coming because they can't handle it? You can't handle the discount? They don't want to be beholden to you. Ooh, discount as beholden. Holy smokes. And discount in that case, you, by offering a discount, you have ended the relationship. Well, you, you've put your hook into them in a, in a way that yeah. is very intrusive. Yeah. Because now, yes, now they would be beholden. So they aren't safe. You have violated the container that's sacred. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I'm just letting that one sink in for a moment. That's really powerful. So often people think, oh, charging less is a sign of generosity. Not necessarily. Well, in our clinic, what I have done is, and I charge top fee in my region, I decided to create a community acupuncture clinic as an option that patients can choose so that they continue to come to treatment for long enough and often enough to benefit. It is not a sliding scale. Uh, in accordance with POCA guidelines, I ask them to choose a fee at the beginning of that process, and that is their set fee. And I don't know what it is. Only my secretary knows. So again, my perception of how much they pay is not going to affect what I do unconsciously. And I am free as a bird. I'm not burdened by any issues about how much they're paying. I love seeing them in that environment. They love coming and everybody's comfortable. They know they can renegotiate their fee at any time. And so- But not with you. No, with my secretary. And mm -hmm. there's no qualification. It's not based on your income or anything like that. It's based on what you say you think it's worth. And this has been- a very healthy option for me so that I have no feelings of guilt about charging a lot of money. And when people express stress about the cost of my, my normal clinic fee, I very quickly say, I would love to have you come to community acupuncture where we can continue this work for you at a price that you find affordable. So that's how I handled that. That sounds really helpful. I mean, you've got a space where you can do that. Yeah. And I don't do traditional community in that I'm not open every day. We just do it one afternoon a week. Mm -hmm. I've met other acupuncturists that will do something similar. They've got their regular practice and then they've got a set time once a week uh, and they'll do something very similar to what you're doing as, as a way of being able to serve more people. And, and I, I love the way that you've made it very clean that you don't know what the fee is that you're receiving, that, that you've got someone who takes care of that, that's not negotiated with you. It's just, it's just not part of the picture. Mm -hmm. It seems very freeing. I love it. Yeah. I love that idea myself. Do you have anything else to say about that before we move on? Well, I want to just talk a little bit about this power imbalance because I think that those of us who tend to fall on our swords and want to be helpful are people who are kind of uncomfortable feeling that we are more powerful than our patient. We 
often earlier in our careers and maybe maybe throughout our careers, we want to imagine that the patient is is on the same level with us. The patient is our ally. The patient is our team member. And because we don't want to be the authority, we don't want to own that we are just inherently more powerful. It's the only way that it can be. This person has come to us for help because they don't have any other solutions. And in most cases, at least in my clinic, they've already been to a lot of other practitioners. And so we are their last hope, and therefore we have a lot of power. And so, of course, that is a role that for each of us is is different um, based on our personality structure. But one of the one of the things that we have to remember also about our patients is that they always want to please us. I would agree with you that the vast majority does. I think there's a small group they're interested in resisting us. I, I mean, they got their own thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it. it I think it's a much smaller population. It's it's important to recognize them. But I think the vast majority. You're right about that. They they do want to please us. They want to be liked. They want to be the good patient. That's why when you ask them, how are things going? They go, well, you know, maybe a little better. We can probably not, we can probably trust that nothing's changed or everything's changed and they forgot about it, but that's a different situation. I I want to come back to this thing about stepping into authority for a moment, because I think you're right about this. A lot of us, we have this sort of egalitarian mindset. We feel like, like we're, we're accompanying people on their journey. We're anarchists. Well, I don't know. Normal people don't become acupuncturists. Well, I don't know if I'm an anarchist. Maybe when I was younger, but I'm certainly not an anarchist now. But but it occurs to me there, there's one way of like stepping into authority because I'm smart and I know more than you and you should flip and listen to me, which that's more the politician authority. I feel like in our situation... And especially because many of us are uncomfortable with authority, either our own authority or our authority on the outside. And yet, because of the context, because of this situation, we are granted authority. It's inherent. It's inherent. And so for us to abdicate our authority in a situation where the authority is ours to manage wisely, I think is a big mistake. And I think it's, and I know that it's something that I have done over the years without being aware of it. Yes. It ends up in patients often not coming back. Yes. Because they just don't feel enough of a container to be held exactly. to really go into some deeper work. Yes. Our authority is, is therapeutic in a sense. Mm-hmm. Not that we're therapists, but there's something about the situation that can be therapeutic. Yeah. They are coming into a relationship with us because the relationship allows a new solution to be produced. And we are the manager of that relationship in addition to being the person who chooses the intervention. And that is naturally a situation of authority. We know more about medicine than they do for the most part. And we certainly know more about Chinese medicine 
And so we, we are an authority. That's just how it is. I think a lot of times troubles arise, again, because of that not feeling a sense of authority ourselves, right? And, and I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can look at our medicine, the way we get treated by insurance companies, you know, or, or where we can't do our medicine because it's not covered by insurance, depending on what side of that issue you're on. I think often acupuncturists will feel a sense of, of disempowerment because we're not part of the mainstream medicine, you know, and it's easy to feel like we're always the underdog. You know, I, it's maybe it's even kind of a delusion that we have, that we don't have this authority. Yes. But, cer but certainly in the context of our clinic, this is a place that is our domain and it is ours to take care of. So if, if that is the situation... And if people are having issues with stepping into authority or have issues with authority, what are your thoughts about working through that on, you know, in our own way so that we can really be present in our clinics in the way that we need to be present in our clinics? Well, each person has to process this personally, but from a logical point of view, if you think about the spectrum of all of the complementary and, me and alternative medicine professions, by the nature of our training and the type of work that we're called to do, we are among the top levels of authority. I would say that uh, naturopaths and chiropractors have a higher level of authority because of their training and their um, their work. But we're right up there, probably second to those two. I think we have more authority than massage therapists and other kinds of therapists, energy workers, because we know a lot more about medicine. And so it's just kind of built in to that education situation. But I also think that on a personal level, we have to consider our own feelings about being an authority. And of course, one of the ramifications is that if I'm an authority, then if I make an, an error, I'm going to feel a lot of things about that. I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to feel stupid that I, I shouldn't have missed that. I'm going to feel not good about myself if I'm an authority because an authority should know everything and be good. And so we need to remember that even authorities make errors and that nobody can know everything ahead of time. And that authority is, yes, it's frightening because it means you hold yourself to a higher standard, you know, than somebody who buys a bunch of acupuncture needles on Amazon and pokes themselves. So, yeah, I mean, you're you're more on a knife's edge, and for some people that's very stressful. Um, but also being an authority gives you the power, gives you the tools to help more people. And so we have to kind of be able to tolerate the, the scary part and be willing to take the risk. And I don't think most of us go into this profession unless we're kind of risk takers. Well, it certainly is risky going and doing three years of training, coming out on the other side into a world where there's not many jobs. And, you know, 
most of us, I think, if we've done any looking into what the profession's like before we started, would know that it's not like we're going to go to work in a clinic somewhere and someone's going to pay us when mm -hmm. we get out on the other side. Because, well, while there's more jobs now than there ever have been, I mean, actual JOBs for acupuncturists, certainly when you and I started, for sure you were going to be opening your own clinic because they're just there were just no other options for that. So another aspect of authority is that authority to some extent is given by the structure in which you work. And so if you do have a job in a hospital, like a VA hospital, for example, you have a lot of authority because the, the, the machine that is the VA or is any hospital gives you authority. If you have a practice like I do, a small clinic where you work by yourself, but it's not in your house, that gives you authority. But if you work in your home, for some patients, it, re it lessens your authority in their eyes. I remember years ago when my clinic was in my home, a patient came for their first visit and she finally said, I just can't trust you because you're working in your basement. And I said, great here's who to go to instead. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, the structure lends authority, even the clothing that we choose to wear, you know, those of us who wear white coats, I wear scrubs, but they are batik. So I wear scrub authority, but then I, I soften it by not having it be some polyester from the nursing supply store. <laughs> so we, you know, our authority is lended by many, many things around us. And, um, I think it's important to think about that and uh, choose, choose consciously how you want to communicate authority with your clients. That's a, that's a really well taken point. When I first started practicing, I, I knew people that practiced in their home. And my thought at that time was there's no way I'm ever practicing out of my home because that's just not professional. And, and I really, especially at that point in my life, I, th I did rely very strongly on the authority of a practice in a professional place that, you know, looked medical, kind of felt medical, had fluorescent light. I mean, you know, the whole bit. And some few years ago, I found I was having a shift and in, in thinking about, you know, I'd like to simplify my life a bit. And I thought about moving a practice into a home if I could find the right kind of home that would have a separate entrance and bathroom and, you know, the whole, the whole shtick. And of course that issue came back up again for me of, oh my gosh, is this professional? That was the first thing that came up. Is this professional? And I thought about it for a spell and I realized, well, you know, after 18 years, if I'm not professional in here on the inside, there's nothing on the outside that's going to help me. Yeah. And so as an experiment, I decided to move my practice into a home space. Again, separate from, from my living space. And it's been just fine for me. But I, I think a big piece of that is because I don't need the outside authority anymore. I used to need it. And it was really helpful. But at this point, I don't need it so much. And, and that's just because I've done this long enough now. I do have people that will sometimes drive up and go, I think I'm lost. I'm in a residential neighborhood. 
And I'll usually ask him, well, did you read the, the welcome email that you got from my clinic? Well, no, I didn't. It's like, well, had you read the email, you would have known. Yeah. And uh, so I have had a few people that were not comfortable with coming to a home. And, and I think that's perfectly fine because people need to see the kind of practitioner that they feel comfortable with. Yeah. You know, one of the other issues with authority that kind of naturally grows out of this is the idea that as an authority with a bunch of patients who, for the most part, want to please us, it is very easy for us to manipulate this relationship for our monetary gain. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this is a huge topic. And what I'd like to do is come back with you and continue the conversation in another podcast. Good. Any last thing that you'd like to comment on or review about what we've already talked about here so far before we wind this one down? Well, I want to just read from something that I have here that says, boundaries always have to do with roles, money, time, space, treatment location, gifts, services, language, clothing, self-disclosure, and physical contact. That's from an article by Tom Gutheil back in the early 90s. And it's so helpful to see that list because that, I think, really encompasses all of the facets of, of this container that we're talking about managing. Great. Well, we're going to come back and we'll dive right into that then. Thanks, Great. Laura. Okay.